Picking up on a theme that we already encountered previously in Sefer Dvarim, in Parshas Re'eh, the Torah in this coming week's Parsha, Parshas Kitavo, continues with and elaborates on the ceremony, the very public ceremony that will take place in the future when the Jewish people enter Eretz Yisrael under the leadership of Yehoshua, where there will be this very public ceremony of brachos and klolos, blessings and curses, on the two mountains, Har Grizim and Har Evel. And here, in Perak Chavzayin, the Torah delineates with specificity the various curses, 12 different curses, that are each followed by the Jewish people saying Amen, attesting to and agreeing to the conditions and the consequences of this behavior and the curse that they would endure if they violated these codes. What is striking is that all of the initial curses and poor behaviors that are referred to are all very specific examples of sins. For example, Oror ha'isha sher ya'aseh pesa lo Hashem. That right away, who is cursed? Someone who makes some kind of an engraven image or an idol. Oror makla aviv ve'imo. Cursed is someone who is disrespectful to his parents. Someone who distorts the judgment of the convert or of the, the widow or the orphan. Someone who has sexual perversions is also cursed, etc., etc. And then finally we get to the very last of the list. Cursed is the one who does not uphold the words of the Torah to perform them. And once again, the whole nation answered, Amen. This is a very... Uh, surprising inclusion in the list because it is so obviously inconsistent with the pattern that has been previously established. Everything until now has been a very specific Avera, and one could certainly analyze why these are the specific things mentioned and not other things, but for our purposes, they're all referring to very specific things. We understand what the Torah has in mind. And here, we have something that is more general and perhaps even vague. And the question is, what is this referring to? Is this an allusion to a specific sin? And if so, what is that? And why not delineate it more clearly? And if not, if it really is just a general and vague problem or a mistake, what general issue, what particular mistake or problem is it that deserves such a curse? And while there are opinions, especially in Chazal, that do see this as an allusion to a particular or specific Avera, I'd like to share a machlokas in the classical mafarshim here on the Pasuk between Rashi and Ramban. And both Rashi and Ramban agree fundamentally with the simple reading of the text, which conveys the impression, as we already mentioned, that we are dealing not with something specific, but a more general, overarching theme. However, they have a slight but very interesting and important debate as to what that specific theme is. Rashi says as follows. What is being referred to here is Kan Kolales Kolatora. As the Pasuk itself indicates, this is a summary uh, commitment. This is referring to the entire Torah in toto. The kibluha alehem ba'Allah And this is in allusion to the fact that at the end of this ceremony, now that they've entered in Eretz Yisrael, into this new stage of Jewish history, the ideal stage with not only the religious nature, but the national and peoplehood and sovereignty in Eretz Yisrael, the Jewish people take this, um, make this commitment and in fact, Rashi alludes to something which we know from the Gemara, that the word arur can not only mean curse, but also a shvua. And Rashi says that in this moment, 
at the end of the uh, ceremony here in Hargrizim and Harevel, the people are publicly accepting and making a shavua, a commitment, that they are willing to accept the entire Torah, they're willing to observe the entire Torah, and it's so doing, they are worthy to enter the land. This certainly is very consistent with the simple reading of the text, and it's in a certain sense very beautiful, but if this last of the curses is really a shua and really in fact a commitment to observe the entire Torah, so then it kind of begs the question, what did we need the previous psukim for? What did we need all the previous curses for? If they were all delineating very specific Averos, and then comes this last one and says, you have to keep everything. So then what did you gain by the first ones? So perhaps, perhaps, bothered by this question, the Ramban, after having quoted Rashi, the Ramban offers his own interpretation, which is slightly different. And Rashi says that this, excuse me, the Ramban says that this Kabbalah is for the Jewish people not to observe all the mitzvos, as Rashi said, but rather, Shiasa the mitzvos belibo view be'enav emes. It's not about necessarily doing the mitzvos, that's obvious, but rather that by doing them, we're doing them because we believe the mitzvos are true. View be'enav emes. We truly believe in them. We accept the validity the truth of the Torah and mitzvot. And furthermore, says Ramban, we believe that we will be rewarded if we do the mitzvot, and that those who don't do the mitzvot will be punished. That is the commitment. However, says Ramban, when it comes to this curse, merely violating an Avera, not that that's a good thing, but from the perspective of this pasuk and this commitment, merely violating an Avera, if it's done out of weakness or carelessness, in some form of teyavon or shogeg, that will not trigger this curse. What triggers this curse, what is required a commitment, and what will be a violation thereof, is only if a person is yachpor ba'achas mehen, if a person denies the validity of one of the mitzvos, or tiyeh b'tela, or even if he thought it was once valid, he thinks it's no longer relevant anymore. Only then, says Ramban, if a person denies the truth of a mitzvah, or denies the eternal relevance of a particular mitzvah, only then is he cursed. Hine ze'aror. Only is that person cursed if it's that. But if he's just weak or careless, of course that's not a good thing, but that's not what this is about. This is about committing to the eternal truth and validity of the Torah. And Ramban proves inter- his interpretation with a very precise reading of the Pasuk. As he points out, the Pasuk does not say, Asher lo ya'aseh, is Divrei HaTorah Azos, which would be better for Rashi. Cursed is the person who doesn't keep the whole Torah. Rather, it says, Asher lo yakum, someone who doesn't accept the validity of the entire Torah. As the Pasuk says in Midgalus Esther, Kimu Aram, they accepted the validity of the Torah. Accepting the principles of the Torah, in a certain sense, is more important even than their performance. The outset of our Parsha introduces us to the mitzvah of Bikurim. And the Torah tells us, When you'll come to the land that Hashem will give you as an inheritance, then you will have the mitzvah of Bikurim, as is delineated and discussed in the subsequent sukkim. Very interesting that the Medrash in the Sifrei, here at the outset of our Parsha, has the following very fascinating, but also enigmatic and somewhat confusing comment. Says the Medrash, Do this mitzvah, this mitzvah which we're about to tell you about, the mitzvah Bikurim, and in a reward, in merit of that mitzvah, 
you will enter into the land. Do mitzvah bikurim, and in the merit of that, you will tikanes laaretz, enter Eretz Yisrael. And the obvious question which many ask is, since bikurim is a mitzvah that is mitzvah tuyabaretz, it's a mitzvah that you only fulfill when you're in Eretz Yisrael. It only becomes obligatory after you've already inherited and settled the land. How is it possible that if you do the mitzvah, in the merit of that mitzvah, you'll enter the land? By definition, you'll already have entered and settled the land in order to become a farmer, farm the land, and then have fruit, to, or produce, I should say, and fruit to bring as Bikurim. It seems impossible. That's question number one. Second question one could ask is, Tupsukim uh, later in Pasa Gimel, we read, You'll say, as part of the Bikurim, that I now am coming, I am arriving, Bati El Aretz, to this land that Hashem promised my forefathers. And the impression you get is that this is not something that uh, only the first generation of Jews who entered Eretz Yisrael said when they did the Mitzvah of Bikurim. Rather, this is something that would be part of the ceremony for all generations. And therefore it seems uh, peculiar to put it mildly that a Jewish farmer who may be the son, grandson, and great-grandson, and who knows how many generations of people who already were Toshve uh, Eretz Yisrael, people who already were living in Eretz Yisrael, and then he, when he brings his Bikurim, is going to start talking about how excited he is that Kibasi al Aretz, I came to the land, but he didn't come to the land. He was a, a multi-generational uh, Sabra. He's been here for who knows how long. So in order to answer both of these questions, Rav Schwab, in his beautiful Sefer, Mayan Beis HaShueva, in the opening uh, comments that he has on our Parsha, says the following. He says, you have to understand that this mitzvah and this medrash and these psukim are highlighting a very crucial difference between Eretz Yisrael and all other lands. Shebeshar ha'aratzos harei metzius ha'adam la'aretz. Says Rav Schwab, in any other nation, in any other country, any other land, the very fact you've crossed over the border into that land, one foot in, one step over the border, and you could say that you have achieved bia to the land. You've entered into the land. Right? That's obvious. You cross the border into Israel, you cross the border into the United States, you cross the border within a state or from another state within America uh, or any other country. You now have entered into that land. That's what borders are for. However, Sister Schwab, when it comes to Eretz Yisrael and Eretz HaKadosha, the Holy Land, says the essence of Eretz Yisrael is its sanctity. And as the Mishnah tells us in Masechus Kalim, in fact, the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael is made up of ten increasingly intensive and higher levels of Kedusha. And in fact, the Mishnah tells us that the very borders are just being in Eretz Yisrael, but in the periphery, that's Kadosh for sure, but that's actually the lowest level. And a person only reaches the highest level of Kedusha, the true Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, when they reach the Harabayas and the Beis HaMikdash. And therefore, says Rav Schwab, Af nimsab even if a person is already in the land, slightly over the border, significantly inside the borders of Eretz Yisrael, still it doesn't matter. Since the whole essence of Eretz Yisrael is its Kedusha, and its most intense and pure form of Kedusha is the Beis HaMikdash, it makes no sense to speak about arriving in Eretz Yisrael, no matter where you're standing, 
until you've gone to the base of Mikdash. In other words, says Rav Shwab, you can't truly have been said to have arrived to be in Eretz Yisrael until you reach, until you visit the base of Mikdash. In fact, he says, this explains answering his second question. That's why all farmers, at whatever generation, no matter how long they've lived in Eretz Yisrael, or how many generations their family have lived in Eretz Yisrael, but all farmers, when they come to bring their Bikurim, they say, By this, by me coming to the base of Mikdash now as a farmer to bring my Bikurim, my first fruits, each time anew, I am Bati El Aretz. I am coming to the land because wherever I live is Kadosh. But it's not the apex of Gedusha. That's only when I come to the, Eretz, to the base of Migdash, which is truly the essence of Eretz Yisrael. Rak achshav biyasi Mikdash, nishlama etzli biyasar. It says Rav Schwab so beautifully, only when we're at the base of Migdash have we completed, have we fully entered in and arrived, and can, can we be said to be present in Eretz Yisrael. And now going back to the opening question that we had on the Medrash, the Sifrei says, do the mitzvah of Bikurim, and in the schar, in the zechus of Bikurim, you will enter Eretz Yisrael. And we ask the obvious question, if you could only give Bikurim once you're already in and settling the land of Eretz Yisrael, how could we say that the mitzvah will be the zechus for you to get Eretz Yisrael? It seems to be illogical. Obviously you already were in Eretz Yisrael, you already settled it, and that's why you were able to have Bikurim. To answer this question, in light of everything we said, concludes of Schwab, this is what the Sifrei means. Sha'idei mitzvah zu zochim lavo el hamikdash. That through this mitzvah, wherever you are in Eretz Yisrael on your farm, in your private land, in wherever shevet you live in, but through this mitzvah, Bikurim, it brings you to the base hamikdash. And only then are you truly considered to have been haknisah amitit l'Eretz Yisrael. So it doesn't mean to settle the land in the schus of the uh, mitzvah Bikurim. Obviously, you already settled it, but rather in the schus of this mitzvah, it brings you to the base of Mikdash, and only when you come to and arrive and are present at the base of Mikdash can it be said that you are truly present and arrived in Eretz Yisrael. One of the more famous sections of Parshas Kisavo, perhaps you could say infamous, is the Tochacha, the very long and scary section of punishments and curses that is promised to the Jewish people if, unfortunately, if we don't observe the mitzvah, so we don't follow the dictates of the Torah, if we're not loyal to our commitment to Hashem, then there is, in fact, a great and very detailed and very scary list of punishment and curses. However, often overlooked is that as a preamble to that tochacha, the first 14 sukkim in the Chet are the exact opposite of that. First, Hashem focuses on what happens if we actually keep and observe all the mitzvos. And there we are promised great reward. Hashem tells us, Hashem will make you supreme, over all the nations of the world. You'll have so many brachos, the blessings will overtake us if we listen to Hashem words. It doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter when. The Torah delineates for a full 14 sukkim all the great brachos and tremendous reward that we will get for listening and observing and following Hashem's Torah. The Medrash in Dvarim Rabbah in Parsha Zayin, in paragraph Dalid, comments in elaborates on this opening pasuk of the 
potential blessings. Focusing on that pasuk, the Medrash connects this pasuk to a following idea. Very intriguing. Says Rabbi Shimon ben Chalafta, Based on our Pasuk, we'll have to get back to how this connects to the Pasuk, but Rosh Hashanah makes an incredible statement. A person who learns Torah, but then does not observe the mitzvot, his punishment is far more severe than someone who never learned, and of course Memela also does not keep the mitzvot. So learning but not keeping the mitzvot is worse than not learning and not keeping the mitzvot. This seems a little bit counterintuitive, or at the very least surprising. So the Medrash proves its point based on a mashal. Lamad Avadoma, Lamelech Shayapardes, a king who had a certain orchard or field, Hichnis Latocho Shnearisim. He hired two sharecroppers, two workers, to work in his field. Echad Hayenotea Ilanos, Umakatzatzan. One was planting the trees, but then destroyed what he planted, cut them down. Bechad Lohayenotea Koliker. And one was just lazy, didn't do anything, didn't plant anything, and also didn't destroy anything, because there's nothing to destroy, because he hadn't planted anything. Says the Medrash, Who is the king going to be more angry at? Says the Medrash, undoubtedly, he will be more angry at the worker who destroyed the crops. It's one thing to be just lazy, to be a little bummy, forgive the expression, but someone who's actually destructive, there was something of value to the king that existed, and then you destroyed it, that's worse than just being lazy and not working. So too says the Medrash. The Nimshal is related to this point as well. Kach, kol mi lamad divrei Torah, ve'enu v'kayim oso, ansho chamor lamad kol ikr. And from here we see that in fact, just like the king will be more upset at the worker who planted and then destroyed, so too Hashem is more upset, the punishment is more severe for someone who learns Torah, knew the right thing to do, and still didn't do them. That's even worse than someone who was just lazy and didn't learn, and therefore, of course, didn't do the right thing because they didn't even know what the right thing was. And the, uh, the deeper point, which is actually quite fascinating and very uh, beautiful, I would say, is that the measure seems to be implying that by learning Torah, that's comparable to planting a tree, so to speak. Just like the worker who planted a tree had already given something of value to the king and then destroyed it, so too by learning Torah, that is if you have planted a tree for Hashem. You're he'emid tamid chacham. By creating yourself into a scholar, turning yourself into a scholar, turning yourself into a tamid chacham, that's like giving Hashem something of value, like the king getting the tree. And then by not observing what you've learned, that is considered destroying the very thing that you created. Now, that's not a direct comparison, because the truth is the tree is really destroyed, and the Tamachacham still exists. Elamai, what do you see from this matter? Something very, very powerful. That knowledge that is not acted upon is considered at best worthless, and in fact, it's actually destructive. And I think that in certain ways, the muscle that the Medrash gives, which is very nice about the king in the field, but I think in many ways it could be applicable to all sorts of job scenarios or even to parenting. When your child, for example, knows better and still did the wrong thing, that is more infuriating than someone who just simply didn't know better. There is something 
destructive about that, infuriating about that. And in the Medrash's mashal, it's like destroying the tree because you've basically taken the knowledge and made it completely worthless, almost inflicted pain on Hashem to have someone who knows better and then doesn't do this. Uh, the Medrash actually concludes by comparing this to a pasuk in Yeshaya and Perchavav, which says, Yuchan Rasha Bal Lamad Tzedek. That a Rasha who never learned anything, Yuchan, Hashem will have a certain amount of chain, a certain compassion or charm towards that person. As opposed to Im Lamad Vlokiyem, says the Medrash, but if we go back to the person who learned and didn't keep, Eno Nechanan. That is the person who, in fact, does not get Hashem's chain, Hashem's kindness, charm, or compassion. And now, going back to the pasuk we began with, says the Medrash, we learn all this, from the fact that the Torah says, Lishmor Lasos as Kol Mitzvosav. The, all the brachos were conditioned on a person who l- observes the Torah. Lasos as Kol Mitzvosav. It doesn't say Lamad as Kol Hamitzvos, but rather Lasos. Of course, the only way you'll know what to do is if you learned, but the Ikar you see from here is Lomid Almanas Lasos. Not enough just to learn, we must act upon what we've learned, and if we learn and don't act upon it, we've actually done something far worse and not learning at all. Our parsha opens with a detailed description of the mitzvah of Bikurim, the obligation of the Jewish farmer to bring his first fruits to the base of Migdash, to present them to the Kohen, and then the owner, and this is really the central theme of the presentation in our parsha, recites a declaration of gratitude of Akar Satov to Hashem for his guiding role in Jewish history, culminating on a personal level with the farmer's ability to have this crop brought to the base of Megdash. After the Kohen takes the fruit and lays them before the Mizbeach, the owner declares, Arami Oved Avi, Lavan tried to destroy our forefather Yaakov, and furthermore, Vayared Mitzrayma, and then later Yaakov went down in a small number to Egypt, and eventually we left in great multitudes. But not before, the Egyptians also tried to destroy us. They mistreated us, they afflicted us, they forced us into great servitude with difficult work and backbreaking labor. But nevertheless, we continue when we say, Hashem saw our suffering, you heard our cries. And he took us out of Egypt, and we went from strength to strength. And eventually Hashem took us to Eretz Yisrael, the land of Eretz Zavas Chalav Udavash. In other words, the centerpiece of this declaration is an encapsulated review of Jewish history. First we were threatened, then we were saved and made it to the land of Israel. The question, however, is that if we're going to have this crash course in Jewish history, why select these specific examples, these two examples where our people were threatened? First of all, just we know there are a lot more than two, unfortunately. So why pick these two? And if these are meant to just be mere examples of the general phenomenon of Hashem's kindness and therefore our Hakar Satov, as He has saved us so many times from destruction, so why not just say in a general sense that we thank Hashem for that? Why mention any specific example? And if there is a need for specific examples, why not just one illustration? Why two? And if whatever it is, if we had to give any specific ones, why pick these two? What about everything that was left out? What about Kriyas Yamsuf, Amalek, the wars with Sichon and Og? What about the Mon in the Midbar, the Be'er? Earlier in history, Yaakov's salvation from the murderous hands of his brother Esav. Why is loved one's feared attack more deserving than Esav's 
almost, almost really attack. And Saro Shalesav, there's so many things you could have picked from. What is going on? So to answer these questions, the Labavitcher Rebbe, in a talk that is included in his collection of Lakute Sichos, in Chelek Yudalad, the 14th volume, he explains what animates the choice of these two episodes specifically, is that they actually have a deep thematic connection to Bikurim. Rashi, on the opening Pasuk of our Parsha, brings the teaching from the Gemara in Masech the Kiddushin, that the mitzvah of Bikurim only became obligatory when the, joys, the Jews had finally divided and fully settled the land of Israel. And every shevet was in their portion, every particular family was in their portion within their shevet. Bikurim was not a mitzvah that became obligatory when the Jews entered the land of Israel, but only after they had conquered and fully and completely settled the land. The Rebbe says that this particular point, that even though they ended up spending years living in Israel before Bikurim, Bikurim only became obligatory when they fully took ownership of the land and possessed it in a very personal and permanent way. This shows, says the Rebbe, that Bikurim was not simply an offering of Hakar Satov, of thanksgiving, for Hashem's gift of the land, because then that would have happened right away, but primarily it was a gift of, it was a acknowledgement of thanksgiving, of Hakar Satov, for our zechus in settling it and making it our permanent home. In the words of the Rebbe, Shabo el hanachla yashvut kivu'aba, that we came to this place, our destined inheritance, in a permanent settling. Not just that we were there, but we were now permanently at home. It was only then, when we settled in our permanent home, that we truly express our hakar satov, our appreciation. It's not just that Hashem brought us to this land, vivienu el but rather that He gave it to us as a permanent home, this land of Eretz Zavas Chalavudavash, this land so beautiful and flowing with milk and honey. The Lubavitcher Rebbe continues and he explains that understood in this light, we now understand why these two incidents of persecution were particularly chosen to be mentioned. Because both of these instances are when our ancestors were not on the move or on the run. They were living in a place of permanent settlement and apparent security. It was Dafka in these two places that nevertheless enemies arose to try to destroy them. Yaakov had dwelled in Aram, lived with, with Lavan for 20 years, certainly felt that he had a home there. His children eventually lived in Egypt for 210 years. These were not places that were just passing through the night. These were not temporary things, but these were places of real settlement for the Jewish people. And nevertheless, despite the fact that they might have thought that they had found a home in Aram and Mitzrayim respectively, it was Dafka then the persecutions arose from Esav and then later, excuse me, from Lavan and from Mitzrayim. The other persecutions, the other things that we mentioned, they all took place when we were on the run. Esav confronted Yaakov when he was traveling. The other miracles took place when we were journeying out of Mitzrayim and we were in the desert wandering. These are times of inherent vulnerability on the run, in the Midbar. But in Lavan's home, we felt at home. In Egypt, we felt secure. And is that fact the very fact that we were vulnerable even in those circumstances gives us the greatest appreciation for the gift of our own permanent home of Eretz Yisrael. Bikurim celebrates the Yishuv of Eretz Yisrael, the fact that we have a permanent home in our own land, in the land of Eretz Yisrael. The genuine greatness and generosity of this gift is accented by specifically referencing these two threats, threats that confronted us at times when we weren't on the run, but we thought we had found other temporary homes. Of course, more recent Jewish history has reminded us of this same message where places where Jews have thought they were home 
have ultimately turned in the opposite direction as well. Now, of course, even in Eretz Yisrael now, we face threats, and in other times in history, the Jewish people felt threats in Eretz Yisrael. But Eino Doma, of course, being home with your permanent government, your permanent army, your army to defend you, than the feelings of vulnerability that we had anywhere else and earlier in Jewish history. As part of the Vidue Maestros ceremony, the Torah tells us that the farmer says, among other things, that I have not transgressed any of your commandments and I have not forgotten them. Rashi, commenting based on a medrash in a sefrei, says, refers to the fact that I didn't make any mistakes, I didn't do anything wrong with some of the specifics of taking trumos and maestros and separating and tithing my produce. But and I didn't forget, I didn't forget to make the appropriate bracha when doing these mitzvos. Rashi, of course, is alluding to the phenomenon, which we have for many mitzvos, of birchos ha-mitzvos. And the simple implication of Rashi is that this pasuk is a source for the phenomenon, for the institution of brachos before mitzvos. Now, you might go so far as to think if this is the source, is Rashi telling us that birchos ha-mitzvos are da'oraisa, based on this pasuk of Veloshachachdi? So all of the supra commentaries on Rashi, the Mefarshi Rashi, point out you can't go that far with Rashi, it's just impossible, because it's pretty much universally agreed that the whole institution of brachos before mitzvos is only mitzvah, it's only rabbinic. Rather, it is alluded to, it's a hint, it's a remez in our parsha to Berchas HaMetzvos, but it's not an actual source. So, given that we have, if not a source, at least a hint at, hint to, a, the phenomenon of Berchas HaMetzvos here in our parsha, I want to spend a few minutes uh, discussing kind of the foundational question for how to understand the whole institution of Berchas HaMetzvos, something which we take for granted, and we say, if, you know, on an almost constant, if not daily basis, um, with so many of the mitzvos where we make brachos before we do those mitzvos. And the question is, what is the relationship between the bracha and the mitzvah? One possibility, perhaps the simplest possibility, is that if you have a mitzvah, and then Chachamim came along and added uh, bracha, that's great. So we have two separate things. One is the bracha, one is the mitzvah. They're both good, they're both wonderful, but they're separate from another, they're just in proximity to each other, but they're separate categories. Alternatively, however, one might conceive of the possibility, one might suggest that even though the Chachamim added and created this institution of Berchas HaMitzvos, perhaps what they did was appended it to the mitzvah itself. They made the bracha and its mitzvah into one kind of integrated whole. It's not just something you do before you do the mitzvah, it rather becomes part of and an enhancement of the mitzvah itself. One illustration of these two possibilities may be a machlokes between the Rambam and the Ravid with regards to the question of circumcision for an androgynous. An androgynous is someone who is born with both male and female organs, and halachically it's a question, it's a suffix, if this person is halachically a male or a female, and therefore Everyone agrees that since we're not sure and this person might be a halachic male, a zachar, therefore that male organ needs to have a circumcision. Suffolk, daraisa l'chumra, brismila of course is a Torah prohibition, and therefore when in doubt, we're machmir. That's the easy part. However, the question is, what about the bracha? In most circumcisions, the moa makes a bracha before doing the circumcision. Would you make the bracha on a circumcision of an androgynous? So says the Rambam, no. It's true that we have to be machmir to do the mila, because maybe... 
this androgynous is a male, but that's suffix brismila to be strict, to be machmir. But the bracha, the bracha is a separate question, and we generally have a, a rule, suffix brachos, lahakel, which makes sense. We're leaning on a suffix in brachos because brachos are derabanon. That's the Rambam Shita. However, the Ravid disagrees. The Ravid says once this androgynous becomes chayiv in circumcision, chayiv in mila, even though he's chayiv because of a suffix, but he is chayiv, once we're doing the mila and that's been determined, then mamela the chiv bracha also gets schlepped along. And therefore you have to make a bracha as well. A big chiddish of the Ravid. How do we understand that? Isn't the Rambam obviously correct? So the answer is, presumably, that the Rambam and the Ravid are really arguing over this fundamental question that we raised a few moments ago. According to the Rambam, you look at the bracha and the mitzvah as two separate things. Since they're two separate institutions, they can have different parameters, different guidelines. And in fact, that's what the Rambam says. In this case, you look at them separately. Since brismila is daraisa, that's suffik lechamra. Since the bracha is darabanan, that's suffik lekula. No problem. How come the Ravid disagrees? So evidently, the Ravid holds that we don't look at the bracha as something separate. The main thing is the mitzvah. And if this is a mitzvah daraisa, we'll say suffik daraisa lechamra. And memela automatically the bracha gets schlepped along, as it were. We don't look at it as a separate question. The question is, do we do the mitzvah? And if it's Suffolk, Darais, and Chumrah, we are doing the mitzvah. And if this is a mitzvah, like bris mila is, that gets a bracha, memela, once we're doing the bris, why wouldn't we make a bracha? We don't look at it as two separate questions, because evidently the Ravid held that the bracha integrates in and becomes a part of an enhancement of the mitzvah itself. A very fascinating machlokos in the Rambam and the Ravid, which would seem to hinge on this fundamental question. Another area where this comes to the fore may be in the different interpretations uh, in the Rishonim of the famous rule of Kalhabrachos over La'asiyaslam. That the Gemara teaches us, and we all know this from experience, that in almost all cases we make the bracha over, before doing the mitzvah. Why is it so important to make the bracha before the mitzvah? So there's different interpretations. The Ritva says it's a, fo- it's a type of kavana. Before we do the mitzvah, you want to put our mind in the right focus, focus on our avodas ha-nefesh, not just the avodas ha-guf. We want to have the right kavana, and therefore we make a bracha before we do the action of the mitzvah. However, others, such as the Or Zarua, suggest that it's in fact a form of chibuv ha-mitzvah. We, do, we make the bracha before doing the mitzvah as a kind of hakar satov, or as a praise of Hashem, an excitement that we have this opportunity to do a mitzvah. And lastly, the Rambam, at least as understood by Rav Salavechik, the Rambam holds that the purpose of making the bracha before we do the mitzvah is because the bracha is a matir, it's a permission slip. Just like you can't eat an apple or any other food before making a bracha sanenin, you need the bracha to get permission to eat the food, so too we need permission to do the mitzvah. So the bracha allows us to do the mitzvah just like the bracha allows us to eat. Now these three are very interesting ideas, and presumably they could also be understood in light of this fundamental question. The Ritva says that we're making a bracha for kavana. That sounds like it's enhancing the mitzvah itself. The bracha becomes part of the mitzvah. However, if it's just a thank you, and especially according to the Rambam, where it's a please, it's something you do before the mitzvah as a matir, that sounds like something separate and not part of the mitzvah itself.